It's Song Talk Radio. Welcome to Song Talk Radio, the show with songwriters talking to other songwriters about the craft of songwriting most of the time. We share tips, tools, and techniques, and together we all become better at writing songs. I'm your host, Neil Modi, and with me, my co-host, Phil Emery. How are you doing, Phil? I am doing fine here in St. John's, Newfoundland. Awesome. Great to have you again. And uh, please send your comments and questions, too, at Song Talk Radio on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or feedback at songtalk.ca, and we'll share your thoughts on the show. And please visit songtalk.ca to see the show post for this episode and to find links to resources we mentioned. And uh, for this episode, particularly, you guys will want to be on the website because there's going to be lots and lots of links to stuff (laughs) as we go along on today's show. And um, before we get to our special guests tonight, um, uh, of course, our songwriting challenge uh, for this uh, 2023 year is going to be writing um, in a different mode. Um, that you're not uh, used to writing in. And uh, we're going to be talking about modes and we're going to be doing a a feature show where we dive deep on on a couple of modes. And uh, we're going to be, you know, putting some uh, resources on our website and stuff as we go along. So hopefully hopefully help everybody out there to participate in the challenge as our listeners have done the last couple of years. And we really, really appreciate that. And we had a great time uh, sharing your songs for the challenges past. And we hope to do it again. Uh, this year. So, of course, this year is, is completely all about, about music theory, um, you know, writing in a, in a different mode. And uh, a follow up to last week's um, uh, chat we had at the beginning of the show when I was saying my sustain pedal died uh, for my keyboard. And uh, yesterday I actually went out and bought a new sustain pedal. And sure enough, the old one was junk. <laughs> so I tossed <laughs> that one using my sustain pedal. And I thought I'd just spend a few minutes and try and come up with, with something in a different mode, just, just a chord pattern. Um, in in a different mode, and I and I just picked um, F Mixolydian um, to work in, and that, and Mixolydian um, mode is the same as a major mode, except you know there's a flat seven um, in it, and and the one thing I discovered with trying to come up with a chord pattern that's that's certainly in that mode is that normally if you're in a major mode you have a 5-1, and we all know, you know, the in F, you'd have the C major to G major, a C major to F major as your cadence, as, as the most dominant um, chord pattern change to, to go back to your one chord at the, normally at the end of a chord progression. Of course, in Mixolydian, that C major is now a C minor. So your five chord is not a major chord, it's a minor chord. And so... So it doesn't have the same feeling. It doesn't have that same sort of dominant relationship to return back to your, your mm-hmm. one chord, to the F chord. So you have to, when you're working in a different mode, you actually have to look at different chords in that, in that mode mm-hmm. that give that same sort of, if you want that dominant feeling coming back to the, coming back to the one, you can't rely on your normal 5-1 relationship. You then have to look at the 7 chord or the 4 chord to give that same sort of feeling. And the, the, the more detailed uh, thought that I had about this is that what, what it actually enables you to, or not enables you to do, but when you, when you, the thing you realize is there's a little thing in theory called leading tones. Now, leading tones are um, semitones that lead you um, from one uh, sort of feeling to the next feeling. So normally in a 5-1 uh, major chord progression, you have a semitone um, 
uh, feeling or semitone relationship you have in the C chord, you have an E natural that goes to the F natural. And that and that's really what gives that that chord relationship that dominant feeling, um, that very resolved feeling. So when you're in the mixolydian mode, that turns into a minor um, and, and, and doesn't give you that same uh, semitone uh, movement to it. So you have to look at the other chords in the, in, in the mixolydian family that then give you that same semitone uh, relationship and, and let the leading tones lead you <laughs> into those spaces um, that, that, that give you those things. So that, that's, I know that's a lot of kind of math, <laughs> but... Uh, but it's something I, I realized um, as I was playing around yesterday and, and definitely trying to, to keep within Mixolydian because before we started this challenge, I would have maybe started in Mixolydian, but then halfway through the chord progression, I would have switched back to major yeah. to, get that, to get that major uh, sort of cadence resolve in there. But, but, but restricting myself into Mixolydian then opens up these ideas to looking at a different uh, chord progression um, to give the same sort of feeling or make, make the things sound resolved if that's what I want. And um, so it just, it just made me realize um, a couple things there. So the five is minor in Mixolydian then? Yeah. So then you have to look at the seven or the four to really give you the, the, the resolution you want. Because the hmm. seven chord in Mixolydian is major. Oh, neat! Right. No, normally, normally, in, normally in in major, it's diminished. You don't, you wouldn't look at the seven chord, but in mixolydian, you can you can use that seven chord, and that gives you the strongest resolution back to the. Oh, level. that's cool! Diminished yeah. chords are weird. I know they are <laughs> augmented and when diminished ones are always a bit strange, and I know so many people just kind of ignore them. It's yeah. like, yeah, oh, it's not pay attention to them anymore. Yeah, yeah, but I, but I think I think the point is you don't you, you can't rely on your your typical movements. Right. Um, when you're playing in a different mode, you do you have to look at all the relationships between all the chords and sort of figure out what what works best for what what you're trying to achieve emotionally. I think uh, trying to stick within one mode for a whole song will be the challenge because, as you say, lots of people go into one mode for a bit and then you know go back to the major because that's what they know how to do. To stick yeah. with the one mode will be a challenge, but I do think it will help you achieve what you want to achieve yeah yeah that's certainly going to be the challenge for me because i do play around with modal interchange a lot in my songs but to stick with one yeah <laughs> and uh and you discovered something uh interesting um on the internet phil about chords yes again. <laughs> um well uh there's lots of packed pictures of cats uh, in case no one's aware so if you I want did to find, not know that yes apparently it's a big <laughs> thing now so if you're looking for cats uh, the internet is the place to go but if you've seen all the cats, um, came across a website called mindfulharmony.app, uh, .app, and it is like a, it's a web app, so it's, a, it's an application that's actually on uh, the internet, so you don't use it on a phone or a desktop or anything. Nothing to download. And, which is fun, and it uh, helps you explore the circle of fifths. It says, helping you write unique and harmonically rich music. It says, become mindful of harmony, use the circle of fifths as a basis for your compositions, make deliberate, powerful modulations, easily find available chords in a given scale, and experiment with harmony and expand your musical vocabulary. Uh, so that's a mindful uh, harmony dot app. 
do a Google search or, you know, come to the show notes and I'll be um, on there. It's the first version, so it's not the most user-friendly. It'll definitely take you some time to play around with it and to experiment. It looks quite uh, neat. It's um, it's kind of fun and uh, definitely has some uh, some nice depth. You can, you know, choose what kind of uh, mode you want to go, you know, Harmonic Minor or Ionian or what have you. It's really, it's a really interesting little application. So it's at mindfulharmony.app. Yeah, yeah. We'd be really curious to hear from our listeners if you um, check out the link and then and try it out. Let us know um, what kind of stuff you can do with it and, and how you find it, if it's, if, if it's useful to you or um, if it's just a fun thing to play around. And, and, and it may very well be a good way to get into this modes challenge um, because yes. they do have all the modes uh, available. I believe um, so, yeah. so. And it's yeah. it's first version, and uh, so it's free. But mm. uh, he does have a little buy me a coffee um, link, so you can send him some cash. Cool. So it was quite neat. yeah, good fun. All right. Okay, moving on to the main event uh, tonight. Uh, we're happy to uh, welcome the return of singer songwriter Alex Worms, and tonight uh, she is do- joined by doctoral researcher. Uh, Dana Swarbick and uh, singer-songwriter Alex Warms and doctoral researcher Dana Swarbick met while attending McMaster University in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, last year, they collaborated to produce a concert research study at McMaster's renowned Live Lab, a state-of-the-art performance theater and research facility, in order to study social bonding between performances and audience members at live music events. The concert study involved both in-person and live streaming audiences and specially designed a set list and motion capture technology worn by the band and audience. And surveys were conducted throughout the, throughout the concert to determine how uh, audience participation activities planned throughout the set influenced a sense of connection between the audience and Alex's band. Uh, welcome uh, to Song Talk Radio, Alex and Dana. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Great to be back. <laughs> Great welcome. to have you back, Alex, and welcome, Dana. So, Dana, can you give us a sense what 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 led to this um, concert and study, and uh, and and what were you really hoping to get out of it? Great question, Neil, and thank you for having me as well. Um, that's a pretty big question. My mm-hmm. journey with music <laughs> cognition and music psychology actually started maybe as early as high school, but when I found out about McMaster's Institute for Music and the Mind and about this perfect combination between music and science, I knew exactly what I wanted to study in university. Um, in my undergraduate degree at McMaster, I ran a or helped with a project in which we had a rock concert in the live lab and I measured audience movement there. And also during this time, I was reading a lot in the music psychology literature And there's a lot of papers suggesting that when people move in the same way at the same time together, that this can promote connectedness and bonding and cooperation. And I started to wonder because uh, whether, yeah, whether concerts could produce the same effect. Also, as a performer myself, I've often felt an extreme connection both to my audience, but also being in the audience and watching performers and a connection to other audience members. And so I thought that the concert venue might actually also be a place in which this connectedness and bonding is happening. And that, along with further reading, gave me the idea to actually specifically manipulate audience participation. 
So with the concert with Alex, Alex did a phenomenal job of getting the audience to sing along and clap along during two of the songs at the concert, which were actually matched to two other songs where there was no participation. And this did indeed manipulate participants' engagement levels and their feelings of connectedness to other audience members as well as to the performer. So people did feel more engaged and more connected during these high participation songs than the low participation songs. And, and that kind of seems intuitively true. Like, like it's kind of obvious to anyone who's been on stage or anyone who's been in an audience for that matter, that when the performer introduces the song or does a sing along or something like that, you feel more engaged um, in a sense. So what, what, what did you find out, you know, beyond that? Great question. Um, it is intuitive, I know, but it's something that had not yet been shown in science. So right. I do think that it is still very vital and important that we were able to measure this in such a naturalistic and realistic event. Even though something's known anecdotally, it doesn't necessarily mean that every experience causes this. So mm. for example, when we actually dig into the individual data of the song, interestingly, it seems to actually be song four, uh, which was the song in which people sang along um, that actually drove the effect as opposed to the clapping that happened in the final song, song eight. Oh. So um, mm. there were differences actually even within the levels of high participation and low participation. Um, and additionally, something that's new and that I'm really eager to dig into, but that I haven't looked at yet because of various competing interests, mm -hmm. is that we also measured the audience and the performer movement. And this isn't something that's typically done at a concert, even though people might, you know, have lots of experience reflecting on their own experiences and their feelings. Um, objective measurement of motion in concerts is a relatively new field. There's actually a lot. It's a growing body of research. And the Live Lab is one of the centers that's best equipped to actually measure this and examine these questions. But what I really want to know is whether this um, motion is has certain characteristics that then result in these enhanced uh, feelings of engagement and connectedness. So of course, when people are participating and singing along and clapping along, they might be moving in a more coordinated manner than they would be when they're not invited to actively do this. Um, but a further question we could ask is, were the people who are most coordinated with each other, most coordinated with the performer, also the ones that reported the most connectedness and engagement? And that's a question I can't answer yet, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. but it's coming. <laughs> did, you, did you have some kind of a control group here to uh, give you a baseline? Yeah, so what we were trying to do is, in addition to looking at the participation element, we also had a live audience and a live streaming audience. And so I was definitely interested in looking at the comparison between their experiences. Anecdotally, I would think that based on my own experiences, live concerts are these events in which um, you can get a really big rush, but maybe a live streaming where you're just looking at your computer screen might not produce the same effect. Well, in terms of connectedness, uh, that's not what we saw. The only significant difference when comparing the live and live streaming groups was actually that in the, I have to look, look at my results to make sure I'm doing this correctly. So uh, the live group reported more connectedness towards the audience than the live streaming group during the high participation songs, but otherwise there were no significant differences. So indicating that the, um, for example, the live group um, did not, sorry, the 
Um, there were no other differences between the groups in terms of, for example, connectedness felt towards the performer. So even those people watching from home actually felt just as connected to the band as the people that were there in person, which is also a finding we actually had in another research project that took place a year and a half ago with the Danish String Quartet, which are a very prolific um, classical string quartet. And we found a very similar finding in this classical research context where the live streaming audience reported not as much connectedness to the other audience members, but they did report the same level of connectedness towards the performer. Now, it's quite interesting, but perhaps related to the fact that if you imagine yourself in a concert hall, if you're seated towards the back, you actually might not have that clear view of the performers. So even though you're there in person, that connectedness could still be broken. And when you're watching a live stream concert, you actually have a very clear view often mm. of the performers. Mm. So there's various ways. We don't really know why we're seeing this. Um, and it could be related to the field of vision. Um, but it's certainly an interesting point that actually people can feel this same level of connectedness in a live stream concert. And especially during Corona times, this is actually very useful for people dealing with loneliness or other mental health concerns that live, live stream concerts could actually have and did help people to feel connectedness. Yeah, I, I certainly found that was true as, as an audience member um, over, over COVID watching many, many live streams. Um, yeah, for sure. Now, how about um, uh, the, the role of stage banter? I know that's lots of you know, there's a lot of different styles. There's, you know, at one point it used to be really cool that your singer would just go up and say, Fountainhead, and then they'd start playing, you know, they wouldn't actually say anything. And that was sort of the, <laughs> the cool thing. And, and then there's other people who do a story and sometimes you just wish they would shut up and play. Um, so where does, where does stage banter sort of sit in all this? Because I think you did a bit of that, didn't you? Yeah, um, I mean, if it's if I can interject, I'm sure Dana has found something, but I, I think when we were designing the set list uh, to make sure that it adhered to Dana's research protocol, like I had so many questions because uh, I'm usually a talker. Like I, I do, I'll have a couple of songs where I say nothing at certain points, but like I like to talk to audiences, and I was constantly asking, "Can I say something here? Can I say something here?" And often the answer was, "Nope." <laughs> I don't think I was allowed to say anything until after we had played two songs, wow. which for me was very strange, felt very <laughs> odd. Um, uh, but yeah, so that that was that was a little bit of an interesting adjustment for me. But yeah, did you find anything about banter, Dana? Yeah, so we didn't specifically ask about the influence of the speaking or the banter. But what I did try to control for, which is what Alex just described, is that I didn't want Alex to say anything or to talk to the audience until after the audience filled the first survey. Um, and that survey, well, they had a survey they filled mm. before the concert, and then they filled a survey after every second song. And Alex was only allowed to speak to the audience after they had finished filling out the survey after song two. Um, now, what's interesting is, so songs two and six were these low participation songs where we measured um, the survey after. And um, glancing at the results, um, I have to double check before I say anything, and it's all very preliminary. Um, but so the differences between song two and song six aren't so big when, it when examining connectedness. And, but there is, I believe, 
let me just double check this um and yeah and before song six of course there was this high participation song oh yes okay so here's something i thought was interesting so for the um okay live audience when they were answering how connected they felt to the other audience members uh song six which was low participation did have higher connectedness than song two so but that's towards the audience what about the musicians um in this case uh there was no difference between song two and song six so it seemed at least like the banter difference because you did speak before song six or you had spoken between song two and song six didn't cause a difference in the feelings of connectedness we cannot rule out the fact that there had also been another high participation song before uh so it's not mm. conclusive whether banter was influencing it but this is definitely something i have a question about and in particular before finalizing the um experimental protocol my idea was also to try to have Alex um, facilitate a feeling of being moved in the audience by sharing a personal story at a specific time point. Given the number of other variables I'm dealing with in this experiment, though, I had to scratch that idea. <laughs> but I definitely am interested in doing more research to understand, can simply talking actually affect the concert experience? Like if you were to compare the same con exact concert and just change the content between songs, could you mm. really change people's experiences that much? And I have the opinion as a performer, absolutely you can, but other people might say, no, no, it's all about the music. What yeah. are your thoughts? <laughs> what was, wh which song was song six? I can't remember. Mm, I have to look at. Was it I'll Be Gone? Because I'm just curious now. I could find it. There was one where you did. I watched this thing on YouTube after the fact, and then there was oh, one yeah. where you a big long sing along thing, right? Yeah, that would have been song four, I think. Oh, okay. Was the big yeah making fun of uh, that and the band. Not to get stuck on the banter talk, but I, I I feel as though like that is an interesting thing to uh, talk about, like what you're doing um, when you're speaking and what type of things you're bantering about. But that was um, presented to the audience. Uh, as a challenge, um, because the bassist in my band, Conrad, truly did not believe people would sing with us. Like, yeah. and we kind of took that. And I, I said, "Hey, everyone! Like, Conrad doesn't think you can sing. He told me in yeah. rehearsal that there's no way this is going to work, right?" Um, so then, and and you know, and I turned it into this big kind of bet. And of course, people. <laughs> proved him very very wrong um so that mm. i mean but that was that was fun right um so not uh, you know if song... i introduced it in a different yeah what was song six yeah song six was you make me feel all right oh that okay not what i was expecting that is very interesting okay so you had you you spoke before song six then you talked about a story Yes. Uh, song six. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a touching story. Song six, you okay. make me feel all right. I would have, uh, is, is, is groovy. Dana and I actually wrote it together. Um, and I would have expected you make me feel all right to have, uh, you know, had a little bit more to, to have been different than song two in terms of engagement. I would have expected it to be higher, Ooh. but I guess the fact that there was no, I described uh, it wasn't different in terms of connectedness to the performer. I have to look right. at my results again if I'm going like, to comment on engagement. Right. <laughs> is, is, is that something you, you also looked at, Dana? Was 
was like the groovy factor. Like if there's a strong rhythmic, you know, coolness factor to the whole the performance, does the audience feel more connected to that as opposed to, you know, a softer ballad that maybe doesn't have as much rhythmic content? Yeah, so we did ask people to report how much they wanted to move along to the songs. However, mm-hmm. I've not looked at that yet, so that result is coming. Right, right. But uh, what's interesting is uh, Alex, I think that the set list, actually, like, the, all the slow ballads tended to be the songs we did not ask surveys after. And right. the ones that were kind of more upbeat, because they were matched to the ones where we had this participation, they were the ones that we measured surveys after. And you can imagine being in a concert, and if you had to fill a survey after every single song, it might really disturb the experience. So we were trying yeah. to make, find some kind of balance between the experimental aspects and scientific probing of the experience and the actual concert experience. And that's, that's why we don't have data on every song. And I'd love to, but I really think it could greatly disturb people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, people had to, I think we timed, it was that they each had three minutes between songs to fill this out. So we tried to, mm-hmm. again, limit that as well. Did How did you um, track people's movements? I mean, did you videotape them and then, you know, put them through AI or something? Or So the Live Lab is a very unique research facility that is equipped with some state-of-the-art technology, including a high-resolution motion capture system. So this is, motion capture is... Um, a type of technology in which there's many cameras around the room that are all aimed at the people. The, every person was wearing a cap that had four markers attached to it. And these markers are tiny little reflective balls that have like thousands of little mirrors on them. And all of these mm-hmm. cameras send out infrared light that is then reflected off of these balls and captured by those cameras. And if you have three cameras that capture the same reflective source, you can recalculate where that is in three-dimensional space. And this is done at a very high sampling frequency. So the next step for me in this project is to actually go through and clean all of the data and then to analyze um, the position and the speed and the acceleration of all these little markers on all of the participants. We captured 69 participants had motion and four performers motion because mm-hmm. luckily all of the performers were also willing to wear headbands that had two markers on them as well. And we have that also not only for the live concert, but also the dress rehearsal. So we're also planning on actually looking at whether there were differences between the dress rehearsal motion and live performance motion of the performers as well. So there's so many questions and so much data that I'm so excited oh, to get yeah. into. But oh, actually, God. I have uh, two other projects I have to finish before my thesis is due March 13th. Oh, and this project actually is not going to be in the thesis because it's a little too tight timing. Oh, wow. But it will be published hopefully in the next six months. Well, here, when, when I watched the YouTube and I saw the little caps on, on all the audience members' heads and, and the performers, too, I, I, I assumed that it was like some kind of electromagnetic brain activity scan. I didn't realize that there were mirrors for the motion capture thing and i was like oh this is interesting but i guess not <laughs> the live lab actually is equipped also with something called eeg or electroencephalography yeah. um but what happens is when you move with uh well these caps the eeg caps they're wired and you use gel to help allow the connectivity mm. between the sensor and the scalp um and if you're moving during this then actually you get a lot of artifacts or uh, problems in the signal because you can imagine like the signal that you're able to measure at the scalp 
of millions of billions of neurons firing is much smaller than the signal of motion that can also uh, kind of destroy the signal. Yeah. So we did not do EEG for this study, but there are other studies that have done EEG in live concert contacts at the live lab and also in other places around the world. For example, at the Max Planck Institute in Germany as well. But uh, maybe uh, the next study I do, I can combine EEG. So I, I, just, I, wanna, I wanna take a step back, to go to the 30,000 uh, viewpoint here. What, what's the big so what? here like what i i kind of want to start with you alex like what what does what does all of this stuff mean to you as a performer does it change the way you think about performance or like what, what what does it mean to you absolutely yeah so we want to feel as connected we want that audience to connect with us and we want to feel connected to the audience as much as possible like that is the factor uh like that's the golden ticket as a performer, right? You want your music and your your show to be impactful and to, like, I remember a coach once telling me, you have to go up there and change people's lives when you perform, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, right? So, um, you know, testing something like this uh, really just kind of proves how important it is to, like in a live concert setting uh, to have these engaging moments uh, in your show and these memorable moments um, and what a difference they do make uh, when, when you incorporate them into a set. And uh, I think the um, it really hit me, and Dana, actually, this was in part of my uh, interview recorded post-show. Um, it was in one of the moments in the set where in other concerts I would have uh, put some kind of participation, but I didn't for the purposes of the study. And I was filling out the survey about how connected I felt to the audience after a song where I did nothing. And um, it really hit me. And that's when I knew what Dana was studying because she didn't tell me, you know, anything I didn't need to know, like, uh, hmm. you know, for obvious reasons, right? Um, so, yeah, it, it really just kind of a, a reinforced the importance of um, giving the audience opportunities to be part of the music in concerts. So what, what have you tweaked in terms of preparing for a show or, or, or preparing a set list? That's not part of a science experiment anymore. It's just like you're just doing a show. Like if it's Friday, you're performing mm -hmm. at Say What. What are, you, what are you thinking about differently? Oh, well, not. I think I'm just doing more. It's the idea of... Um, and anything I can think of that even sounds a little bit crazy uh, to do in terms of entertaining an audience, um, I've kind of this idea of like l like little entertaining bits that seem like they might be risky or mm. you know a little bit um, scary to do. I'm I'm leaning into that more if it makes more if that makes sense. Um, rather any any time I can go beyond just introducing a song and playing it, like if there's something a little bit uh, ridiculous I can do or a little bit mm. hilarious I can do, I'm I'm gonna do it. <laughs> mm, okay. And uh, hopefully it'll be memorable. Dana, how long did it take to plan this experiment? I mean, it's, it sounds incredibly uh, deep, and just the amount of data that you're wind up with is, is huge. How long did it take yeah. to put this whole thing together? Yeah, so I think I had this idea back in my undergraduate, I want to say in 2016. <laughs> then it took me a couple of years to do a master's and get a PhD, where I applied with this idea, actually, something very similar. Then corona happened. And so I wasn't able to actually start this. 
And I had initially planned it for January 2022. Went to Canada because I live in Oslo now in Norway. I'm actually at a position at the University of Oslo. Nice. And I moved here to be able to do this PhD. Um, Then in January 2022, I went back to Canada with the hopes of doing it. But we had another lockdown and all concerts were canceled again. So Mm -hmm. I actually had to come back to Norway and then back to reschedule it for later in the year. And so it happened at the end of September. But I arrived in Hamilton August 15th, and I had already done much of the paperwork that was necessary for all the research um, months earlier in before January. So it was a it's a really long process. And I say optimistically that I want to publish this within uh, six months. But there's also I forgot to mention, we didn't just measure with motion capture in the live audience, but also we measured the live streaming audiences movement as well using their own smartphones. Um, there's an app called the Music Lab app that I've worked with before in other research projects, which uses and leverages the inertial measurement unit sensors of people's phones or the accelerometer. And we had people wear it on their chests while they were watching at home. So the idea is, and we also had the live audience, um, at least a subset, also measuring their chest motion so we can compare this between the live and the live streaming audience. So yeah, there's mountains so of data. Um, but I'm really grateful to have an amazing team that's been helping me. I do want to just shout out my amazing RA, Nicole Fu, uh, some of the amazing Live Lab team members, Susan Marshrolo, Dan Bosniak, and um, Laurel Trainer has been, uh, and also Wendy, and oh my god, I don't want to miss anyone. I'm sorry, I got in a <laughs> trap here. Um, yes. I will remember in a moment. <laughs> and Master goes to okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's amazing. And, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you're, Phil, you're you're right too because it's like you know, the enormous amount of data that you've collected, and you can you can examine so many different facets of this thing, right? Because like like you said off the top, like a, a, some of this stuff or a lot of it is intuitively, you know, true as as such. But to get into that level of of detail really it starts to illuminate certain things and really really kind of break it down um i think one of the issues is as a performer and you know if you've just sort of doing it the way a lot of people do just get into a band and you start playing shows and every now and then you have an amazing show and the audience is right with you and it's an amazing mm-hmm. experience and you're you're performing better than you've ever performed before then you'll do another show and it's just dead and flat and the audience isn't responding. And you know you've had these different outcomes, but you don't know why. And then, of course, everyone in the band has their own, their own opinions. And as a takeaway from all this, and I realize it's, this is very preliminary and the data is very new, having all that nice new data smell. What are the takeaways that the average singer, songwriter, or performer in you know their local band can they take away from that? Should they be getting people to to sing along each song or clap along each time, or is is it too soon to do it the first song? How do we actually get this into something that's useful to a schmuck like me? <laughs> I don't think you're a schmuck, Bill, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me that well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, That's a great question. And I really hope that when I analyze it more thoroughly, I will have better pointers for people because, yes, my ultimate goal is to help singers, songwriters, help performers and also to give audiences a better time. Right now, from what I've looked at, it's clear that uh, Song 4, which I'll find the name of uh, before I go. So cold. 
So Cold produced more engagement and more connectedness than the final song, What You Want. And I, these were the two mm. ones where we had this active participation. And uh, that indicates that it's not only the participation that is actually producing these effects, that there is something magical about the combination of ingredients that comes together. And so I don't think that if you had people actively participate in every song, that it would be good. Eventually, it'll become bore, um, people, it'll be too much of a demand on the audience. It might, um, it's really dependent on the genre as well. In a classical concert audience, you'd never ask them to clap along. You know, there's certain sociocultural, there's certain sociocultural constraints at play, and mm. the context is extremely important. And it's always nuanced. Um, I don't know why we had less. I'm excited though to look at the enjoyment measure because I think that there could be um, a trade-off between the people really truly enjoying it or maybe also there's a novelty effect maybe just that it, the fact that it was earlier in the night they were less tired maybe um gave it that higher engagement uh watching the youtube video can give you some hints or you can come up with your own hypotheses but um yeah the tools we have to measure are not perfect um on the one hand you could do some qualitative research and i could have interviewed four audience members and done the same amount of t put the same amount of time into just extensive phenomenological interviews. But what I've, I prefer to do is to try to understand something about many people at the same time. And surveys are an easy tool to just probe um, snippets of their experience based on some a priori hypotheses that I have. Um, but I, I did want actually, I had an answer to Neil's question earlier and I wanted to share the bigger picture that I have in my head, if that's right. okay. Yeah, please. Um, because I agree with Alex about trying to, you know, enhance performers' experiences, but I also see concerts as a really beautiful sample of a societal activity that mm. includes people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds um, that don't necessarily share anything in common other than a shared love of music or that type of music. Of course, there are certain things that they have in common, but um, I also like to imagine the concerts, for example, that are hosted by the city or the municipality that invite all the community members. And my dream is to be able to show that concerts can be venues where bonding can occur with the ultimate goal of then leveraging more funding and resources to allow communities to then have and host these experiences to try to bring these communities together and making them stronger, allowing people to cooperate better together or to you know, see each other as uh, tied in their community. That's my ultimate big dream goal. Mm. Not necessarily something that can be done in a PhD, uh, but I'm slowly chipping away and working towards that because I think that um, in addition to music, there are yeah various group activities like sports that are also yeah. extremely important for community building. And that's the bigger picture I have. And and music plays a big part in sports too. Yeah, That's true. absolutely. So I have two questions. Dana, did you also track the age of uh, participants as well? Yeah, it's very normal to always collect demographics such as we actually collected age, gender, income level because we also measured mm. things like how much they had paid for the concert and were willing to pay for Alex's next concert whether they actually even bought merchandise. And there was, uh, I think you sold out of your merchandise at the cool. live show, Alex. <laughs> a couple of things sold out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was awesome. 
<laughs> yeah. So I'm super eager to get into that data as well, because that's an actual behavioral measure of people's devotion to Alex as a performer based on what they experienced at that concert. Because actually, I think that the audience and we also asked um, whether they were personal relations of either Alex or myself, because a constraint of doing this kinds of research is you need people to actually show up. And unfortunately, that often relies on depending on your friends, family and fans. And so the audience was a mixture of people that we already knew. So they might already have been bonded or connected with one of us before. But luckily, there was enough also, I think, that didn't know Alex's music, that knew me and vice versa, that allowed us to have variability in their fan status, for example. Mm. So there's so many different predictors we could examine to understand better what is producing this bonding. And there's a lot of confounds as well, such as, yeah, prior exposure to the music or previous experience. That's fascinating. Now, you had mentioned that the last song did not have as much engagement as, I think, song four? I think you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, Alex, a big thing when I was performing in bands is, is developing a set list. You want to have sort of a, an energy and then usually you know, the last song you want to have as, you know, being the, the highlight. So what was the last song that you chose, Alex? Yeah, so, and, and that's an interesting point. And as you say that, I'm thinking, should I swap those two songs in my set this mm. Friday and see what the difference is? Um, but so uh, song four, where we had the most engagement, is called So Cold. And it's a really easy, really fun sing-along chorus song. Uh, that piece. So the way I usually perform that is I teach the audience the chorus at the beginning. We go right into it, and um, and we just kind of keep singing. Uh, and it, as I mentioned before, it had the added uh, effect of um, the audience uh, helping me win a bet with my bassist <laughs> mm. uh, by proving to him that they did sing. And then the last song um, is a song called What You Want. And I think that, you know, the difference there is that um, the participation activity was less involved. What it was was a, a dropout bridge uh, where the instruments all stopped playing and we got everyone clapping the beat uh, with us oh. from the bridge uh, until the end of the song. Um, but, you know, they didn't. So from the beginning of the song, like I don't, you know, I started by saying all of my thank yous, last song kind of thing. And then the participation teaching moment happened right in the middle of the song uh, and through to the end. So, um, yeah, a bit of a difference in, you know, the amount, I, I think, of, of engagement, the, the opportunity, I think there was kind of maybe a little bit less to be had just because of um, the way we did that. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of audience partis participation on the last song. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I would okay. say definitely not as much as the fourth song, though. Clapping versus singing. Clapping versus singing. And um, yeah. Actually, though, they are singing along in the last song as well. I realized oh, what's they? funny is so, and it's because you were singing along, um, I think. If I, or, okay. or was the other way around? I know the. Basically, I remember watching the concert again and realizing, oh, maybe it's that actually you were clapping along in So Cold as well. Because I remember being like, oh, no, we wanted singing and clapping. And then all of a sudden you're singing oh. and clapping. But uh -oh. it's fine. Like, I, it's still a manipulation of participation, but it just makes it less clear whether it's the clapping or the singing. But we can compare right. it to song eight as well. 
So it's mm-hmm. uh, funny. But this is one of the funny things about doing research in a naturalistic concept context mm-hmm. like concert and that's gonna happen and that's awesome and it was beautiful so yeah, yeah. so many different like like phil you were talking about you know when when if you're in a band you have an amazing show one night and then you know the next week you have a show that kind of falls flat the the other thing like i, I perform in a band as well at least pre-pandemic and we're getting back together again soon <laughs> and um um one of the things that I, that we collectively as a band commented on is is the audio quality like was was the person doing the mix in the venue did did that person really nail the mix and get our monitors sounding perfect for each performer and that really fuels us to like you know hit the hit everything really tightly and that in, in turn energizes mm-hmm. the audience they start dancing along whatever like there's you know just to throw one more variable <laughs> into the mix um that that affects audience participation and audience engagement and everything it just it's, it's, it's crazy how many things go into it. And we did measure this, actually, in uh-huh. this concert experiment. Surprise! Right. <laughs> because we measured for the live streaming audience. In my previous research on live streaming concerts, I have found that audio quality actually predicts connectedness. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important we included it for the mm-hmm. live streaming audience. But mm-hmm. I believe I also included a question on the audio, auditory and visual experience for the live concert audience as well and so this will also be something we look at because um you might know from anecdotal experience when you watch a live stream concert and the audio is bad there's just no way to enjoy the music yeah and when the audio is good it's can then you're at least have more flexibility on whether you enjoy it or not and um i think that's a hugely important part of live stream concerts actually being effective now, we had a very professional sound uh, technician for the concert. He's also one of the coolest people ever, Ronald Sanadera. So, uh, and he had done the mix for the live concert during the dress rehearsal, and he spent most of the, dress, uh, the sound check time in the live performance tuning the sound for the live streaming audience. Mm-hmm. I know that the live streaming audience, at least personally, I found that the YouTube video is not as good as the sound in the live concert. Oh, and that's okay. usually the case because yeah. you don't have, like he mm-hmm. still added reverberation, he still added some room sound, but it just wasn't exactly the same. Um, but it was still very high quality compared to some of the other live stream concerts out there. Mm-hmm. Sound volume. <laughs> Here's some more uh, variables like sound volume, because with some music, sound volume helps to enhance the experience. If it's too loud, it can be awful. If it's too quiet, it can sort of be weak. I went to a motorhead and was expecting, you know, looking forward to, you know, being blasted away. And of course, the sound now is so much better. So the sound was just fine, but it wasn't terribly loud. And I was a little disappointed because my ears weren't ringing. Motorhead, not loud. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> Motorhead. I mean, there. Somebody messed up there. Yeah. So it's that would be a, yet another variable to throw into the mix. And that sound tech probably thought you were grateful for not having ears ringing. That's what I love in a sound tech is when my ears don't ring after the concert. Oh my god! I go, I go to rock shows. I go to rock shows now with earplugs in. Yeah. No questions asked. Uh, yeah. Oh, All the time. Absolutely. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you, Dana, on that one. Just like hearing protection, everything. Just... Yeah. Interestingly enough, it's classical musicians who suffer the most hearing loss, more mm. so than rock musicians. Because that is it's interesting. The, yeah, it's the it's apparently the, the contrast of sounds. Yeah, uh, it goes from super quiet to super loud. <laughs> yeah. So. 
It also depends on where in the orchestra you're seated. If you're in front of uh, the trumpets, then you're screwed. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's research showing like uh, the position in the orchestra also impacts the amount of hearing loss or the side of the ear as well, based on oh, whether right. you're yeah. playing only on one side. So a violin, for example, oh, only goodness. gets on one side of the of the head. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Pretty deep, this stuff. If uh, people are interested and they want to maybe even get involved or support you or do whatever they do with um, PhD students these days, how would they go about that? Yeah, great question. Uh, you can connect with me on social media. Um, Twitter is where I put my academic work. So I'm at Dana Swerbrick on Twitter. Um, and that's the best place to find it. Or you can Google me and find my University of Oslo webpage. And up there, you'll find my email as well if you're interested. Um, I believe, yes, so we will hope to publish this and I'll promote this certainly on my Twitter, um, within the next six months. Um, and, uh, if they have any ideas though, they're welcome to also reach out. Would you do a book? Would I do a book? I will be publishing a thesis that will not include this. A thesis is basically a book. It's going to have all of the research I've done in my PhD, which includes a experiment on uh, Corona concerts, mm. on live stream concerts, on using the um, Music Lab app and the smartphone to measure motion at concerts. Also, a paper that I'm so close to finishing uh, that's co-authored uh, with a colleague, uh, where we've looked at musical absorption in a classical concert and how that relates also to affective outcomes like feeling moved and uh, feeling awe. Mm. And finally, the final paper, which is still in the works, but will focus on the connectedness uh, that is uh, felt at a classical concert. Mm. Fascinating. That's going to wow. be fascinating a stuff. A lot too. <laughs> a lot yes, I am uh, writing a book I'm in the process. Yeah, yeah. It's due March 13th. So after that, you can uh, find it online, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> It would be amazing if you read it, to be honest, because I don't expect anyone to read it other than Just my committee. Deep. You might have a lot of people reading this uh, stuff, especially, uh, you know, musicians are always uh, focused on these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, you get the Coles Notes edition. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess if people want to find out my music, you can also find uh, I have a song yes. on Spotify and I have cool. um, Facebook as well. My band is named Dana and the Monsters. Awesome. So, what yeah. kind of music? It's like alternative folk rock with jazz and blues influences. A little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> what was the biggest surprise from all this so far? Oof, I think I'm still surprised that that live streaming audience enjoyed it so much because I I really expected that the live audience would per, like say that they felt more engaged or more connected. Mm. But I, it could also be um, a constraint of the way we measure these things. So when people were reporting, they're um, either ticking a paper, uh, like a line in a paper, or they're sliding a bar on their smartphone. And it could be that people use different parts of the scale depending on uh, which audience they're in or that because there's two extremes like they're always you know treating it like a fraction as opposed to a ranking or something so that's a um, consideration for future work i suppose but uh yeah it's i think it's also very promising though for the live streaming industry as a whole hmm. yeah i'm sure there's going to be some live streaming companies who might be uh, reaching out to you 
hope so. Yeah, trying to make that music work on Zoom. Um, how about for you, Alex? What was the biggest surprise so far? Oh, the biggest surprise. That is a very good question. Um, I don't know if there was a surprise. I, I think, like, for me, the moment of surprise was when I realized what was being studied, or I, at the moment I think I realized, and I did get it afterward. <laughs> Dana told me I was right. Like, I, I think, you know, I went in there and I we'd had some great rehearsals and we had rehearsed the set and planned it uh, really carefully. So, and I felt, you know, really ready and really excited, and the show was everything I wanted it to be. Like, it was... I, I'm still like beaming every time I think about how fun it was. And then we, even if you watch the concert video, we did a second half and we, my band and Dana performed some of Dana's music. Yeah. That was really fun. So I think in terms of surprise, it was just that, yeah, that moment where I finally realized what was going on and then watching Dana's presentation halfway, the band and I watched in the green room when she explained what they had been measuring um, and it was just astonishing and exciting. Um, yeah. <laughs> cool. I want to add to that. I think my favorite part of the night was the interview with Alex after the show when she, <laughs> like, I asked, what do you think the experiment was about? And she just hit the nail on the head. And I was like, oh, no, this is bad or good or or it's amazing because <laughs> like, she knew because it was at song six. Basically, the performers were answering questionnaires as well after each uh, every second song. And then after she had done the clap along, sing along at song four, in song six, she was answering the survey and she said, huh, I feel way less connected now. What happened? <gasps> and then she had the epiphany, which is amazing. Like, that mm -hmm. is so cool that I think even if we didn't see anything in the audience, the fact that the performer feels this difference in connectedness based on the participation is also very meaningful and intuitive, but still really cool to measure and to be able to show. Oh, another thing that surprised me, sorry, that took me by surprise, I didn't really, like, they didn't tell us they were collecting data during the dress rehearsal. So, like, they told us that after and we were like, oh, <laughs> okay, which I, just all the little things. And I, I think you, I don't know if this was deliberate, but I, I think I was misled a little bit to believe that you were specifically studying, like, how the motion was affected by, so going into the concert, I thought it was going to be like, Oh, the slow songs, do people move as much as they do in the fast songs? Because I think motion was in the title of the event, was it not? So yeah, I'm, yeah. You have to do these things so people, you know. <laughs> I well, I am still interested in motion, but I know that Emily Wood is going to be so happy that you just said that about the dress rehearsal live, because actually this was something that was kind of new, brought in by the fact that Emily and I got talking and really vibed, so. Emily Wood is another PhD candidate at McMaster, oh. right? Yeah. Okay. Who was at the concert? Yeah. So they'll be. You want to you want to guard against the placebo effect as well. Yeah, and there's that. So <laughs> you know, so Demons much, are so, so much. Fun. <laughs> okay, and uh, we'll certainly um, we'll certainly link to your Twitter, um, uh, Dana, uh, off the uh, the show post on songtalk.ca and, um, and and your music as well. And and of course, uh, Alex, where can where can listeners find more about your music? We'll we'll certainly post the YouTube of of the concert so people know what uh, what to look at there. Yeah, 
people can, well, definitely go watch the concert because it was cool. Um, you can check out my work at alexwarms.com. That's W-H-O-R-M-S. And uh, my music is available to be streamed on all streaming platforms. And I'm also on all social media platforms at Alex Worms. Mm-hmm. And Alex has been on our show a couple of times, most mm-hmm. recently talking about her holiday song from a few months ago. So definitely check that episode out. And uh, we want to hear from you, everybody. So please send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Song Talk Radio. Send us an email at feedback at songtalk.ca. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel for live performance videos and full episodes. Subscribe today to the Song Talk Radio podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And you can find links to all the products, books, and web services we mention on the show on our resources page on the website. And wherever you are in the world, please join us online via Zoom at our next monthly Song Talk Meetup. It's free to join on meetup.com and free to attend the meetup. Bring a song and a lyric sheet and get constructive feedback from other songwriters. Stop by songtalk.ca for the link. Uh, you can follow me at neilmodi.com. You can follow Phil. philemory.ca. Perfect. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And be sure to stop by the website songtalk.ca to browse past shows and find out how you can be a guest. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Keep on writing, keep on researching, and keep on giving us oodles of data. Yes, we want the data. Yes.